0: So we are in this series on Malachi. Six weeks in Malachi. This is the fourth week. Malachi is the last book... Uh, not only placed in the Old Testament, but also chronologically in the, the Old Testament. Um, it's God's last word to his people for 400 years before the Messiah comes, before Jesus uh, comes. And we've been fascinated as a staff and as all the redemption pastors across Redemption at how uh, God's last words to his people after, before 400 years of silence are really words of rebuke and correction and dispute. Uh, really pressing in very hard to the things that God's people are doing wrong. Now, there's plenty of of, of not only is there correction and rebuke, but there's also assurance of his of his love and his salvation. But he he goes right at the heart of the matter. And in fact, we've called this series "Heart Surgery" because it's not there's nothing superfluous about this. These messages are very challenging, and today's going to be really challenging um, as well. Uh, Tyler, our pastor of Church Formation Worship, has even come and said, I'm going to make sure that we have some really comforting and upbeat songs during this series because this is hard stuff that we're dealing with. This is God's message to his people 2,500 years ago. So what does that have to do with us today? Well, we say quite often that God is timeless. He's eternal, and a timeless, eternal God would not ever, cannot ever produce dated material. So even though this is Malachi speaking on God's behalf to God's people and correcting them 2,500 years ago, we hear these messages today in our context and we recognize the truth of them for us as well today. They're the same things that we struggle with uh, even today. And so it is really good for us to study this and for us to uh, hear this. And I would argue again that um, Malachi is a rhetorical genius. He sets up this this book uh, with these six, different messages and they're really six different disputes. And the disputes follow a a similar and familiar pattern. Uh, God goes to his people through Malachi and he says, I have this against you. I have this charge against you. I have this correction I want to make uh, with you. And immediately the people get defensive and push back and say, nah, that's not us. Really the problem is with you, God. And then God is allowed to present his case to the people. And of course, God is correct every single time. He wins uh, the, de- the debate. And so we've been through three of these disputes. And let me just kind of um, uh, summarize each one of them so you know where we are in the book. The first dispute was uh, the need for us to understand God's unconditional love, that he really does love us unconditionally. And what was interesting about this message is the illustration that God chooses to use in order to teach his people about his unconditional love. Uh, I would think that God would point to the Exodus and say, I saved you from Egypt and brought you out of slavery. That proves my unconditional love for you. Uh, Maybe he would point at the uh, exile and say, uh, you were in exile for 70 years. I brought you back from the exile. I saved you out of the exile just 100 years ago. Uh, He doesn't point at that either. He doesn't say anything about the exodus. He could have talked about all the um, miraculous military victories that uh, he gave Israel's kings throughout uh, their years. All these crazy victories that they never should have won. He could have talked about that and pointed at that. He doesn't point at that. Instead, he points at a people group. that are not part of God's people. He points in Edom, the, the descendants of Esau, and he says, here's how you know I love you. When you rebelled, you went into exile, but after 70 years, I restored you, I brought you back. But when Edom rebels and when Edom is judged... When they uh, go into exile, they will not be brought back. Their their judgment, their condemnation will be permanent. And so what he does is he gives us this picture of his preference for his people, indicating his absolute unconditional love for us. You know that I, I have lots of conversations with people, and I like to relay sort of the themes of those conversations. I have many conversations with people both inside and outside of the church who want to point at God and find his faults and they find it's false by saying why is god doing this over here why doesn't he do this over here what about this unjust injustice over here why doesn't he fix that what about the suffering over there why doesn't he save those people over there what i hear far less frequently is this why did god save me why did god show me favor why has God decided to become a blessing in my life? That's the question I ask most often. And, and when I really ask it most often is when I am alone with my own thoughts. Have you ever thought about this? I know, thinking about your thoughts, that's very esoteric. But have you ever thought about that? Just run through your thoughts. Not what you say and what you do, because we seem to have some filters anyway still in our culture. But if you just think about your thoughts, if I think about my thoughts, it's like, why would God ever show me favor? And yet he does. He does. And that's his unconditional love. It's as though the human condition would rather point out where God is wrong rather than where God is graceful. And so that's what the first message is about. The second message is God calls for our full surrender, and he talks about the offerings that the people were bringing. Tyler uh, taught this message on, on Marathon Sunday during, uh, b- right before our picnic. Uh, and, and, and Tyler helps us, helped us to understand that, yes, the people were bringing offerings to God, but they were always taking inventory and in stock of what they could offer, and they would always go to the thing that cost them the least, the, the thing that would be the least amount of sacrifice, the thing that they would miss the lease, and I have a bit of a an illustration here. Uh, Jackie was my wife was in the first service, and I could see her heart was hurt just a little bit by this illustration. But ultimately, she did say it was true, so this illustration is true. Uh, the Switzers, we have always been uh, we are dog people. Any dog people out there? Okay, we have dogs. Okay, um, we have never had less than two dogs in our house, and usually we have three. We've never had four, thank goodness. But we usually have three, and right now we have three dogs. Okay, so we have a one one year old. Well, he's not quite one. He'll be one in May. And his name is uh, Kevin. And yes, we have a dog named Kevin. It's weird. There's a backstory. And I, I don't know. I'll tell it to you someday. But anyway, Kevin. And, 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 and so there's Kevin. Uh, and then there's a four-year-old named Isabeau. There's a backstory to her name as well. But her name is Isabeau. And, and then we have a, a dog that's almost 15 years old. And her name is Lucy. Um, part of her problem is she's named after Lucille Ball, and I don't really care for her. So right out of the gate, she's, she's suspect. Anyway, the, the, the one that's not quite one, Kevin, uh, just uh, all the dogs that we've ever had, he is absolutely the funniest dog we've ever had. He's so entertaining. He's so cute. He's very mischievous, but he makes up for it just by how cute and entertaining he is. And of course, he's less than one year old. So we have this Long runway with, yet yeah, with him. And then there's Isabeau, the four-year-old. Of all the dogs we've ever had, this dog is absolutely the sweetest. She has the sweetest disposition of any dog we've ever had. I mean, you just you look at her face and you just melt. She's absolutely wonderful, and she's only four years old. Then there's Lucy. Lucy's 15, almost 15, you know. Um, Lucy's kind of grumpy anymore. Uh, she doesn't see very well. Um, she doesn't hear anything, unless she wants to. Um, she, um, she also, Lucy's a licker. Have you ever had a dog that's a licker? Oh, yeah. She, it just, it, she licks whatever's in front of her, she licks. So she licks the couch. She licks, she licks the fan. When it's oscillating, it's really funny to watch her try to lick it, okay? Uh, she, whatever is in front of her, she, she's just constantly licking, okay? So... You understand that if God ever came to us, the Switzers, as a family, and said, you need to show your love for us by offering one of your three dogs in sacrifice, you understand which dog it would be. I'm sorry, Lucy, but, you know, you only got another year or two anyway. So, it's, I mean, that's just the reality of it, okay? And I love Lucy, but, yeah, you know, she's kind of grumpy. Anyway, that's the point, though. We look and we say, we... we We count the cost. Okay, Now, Jesus says count the cost in things of your life. But when it comes to offering sacrifices, really what we're supposed to do is bring our first fruits. That's the whole point there. We're we're to bring the best that we have to God because he deserves the best. And that was the second dispute. The third dispute was about faithlessness. The word faith translated faithless is used five times in those seven verses. And it's about breaking of covenant. And we looked at how this passage was really on two levels. It was was about divorce and adultery of us with each other. But it was also about divorce and adultery against God. And so there were two levels there. Today is the fourth dispute. God's people struggle to understand true justice and judgment. And here's the big idea for today. God's judgment is the revelation of his holiness and its effects on both his people and those who do not fear him, and the effects are different. We need to understand the effects of his judgment are different. So we're just going to walk through these verses like we have been every single week, starting with verse 17 of chapter 2. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, the people say, how have we wearied him? Well, because you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? So this is an interesting concept to me as I was studying this. Um, God is wearied, and I didn't know God got wearied, but he is wearied, and who's wearying? What's wearying him? It's his people. His people are the ones who are wearying him. So I started thinking about that. Um, Do you ever get... Yes, you do. But do you ever get weary of doing things for others over and over and over and over and over and rather appreciating what you've done and thanking you and being grateful for your effort, your sacrifice, and investment? Instead, they curse you for not doing enough or they curse you for not doing it correctly in their eyes. All of us have had that experience. Well, Malachi tells the people, this is God's experience. He's redeemed you and restored you out of exile, and all you do is grumble and complain. And really, it's more than grumbling and complaining. The first statement that they make to God is an accusation. They accuse God of uncaring injustice. That takes some nerve. And then the question they ask is is really just a snarky, sarcastic, rhetorical hit job. And I want to be honest here. I want to be honest to the context, to the history of this, um, the Jews have been redeemed and restored. That's true. They they've got they got what they had been praying for for seventy years, but it hasn't been easy. Rebuilding the city Jerusalem was hard. Rebuilding the wall was hard. We read about that in the Old Testament. Uh, rebuilding the temple was really hard. Their economy, at best, has been sluggish for a hundred years, and they've been harassed and attacked by their neighboring. Nations and countries. But what exactly were they expecting? See, this is a message for us today. God's people still, even though they have Christ, God's people still have to live in an ugly, fallen, broken world. And so there's going to be tribulation. Jesus spends that last night before he's betrayed and goes to the cross, he spends with his disciples teaching them. And you can find that in John 13, 14, 15, and 16. And then in John 17, all of John 17 is Jesus praying for them and for us, by the way. He prays for us in that prayer. That's the true Lord's prayer, in my opinion. That's when he sits down and prays uh, for us. But right at the end of his teaching with his disciples in, in chapter 16, he said, Now, I've told you all of this stuff, and a lot of it is about the tribulation that they're going to they're face. He says, I've told you all this stuff so that you'd have joy. And then he says this, in this world you will have trouble. You know those little books that that are the promises of God and you open it up and you start reading those verses and you discover that you're going to be rich and you're going to be famous and you're going to be popular and all that stuff. I've never seen in this world you will have trouble as one of the promises of God. That's a promise from Jesus. In this world you will have trouble, but he makes a second promise. He says, but take heart, I have overcome this world. And that's where the joy comes from. We need to remember that's what Jesus is saying. Right? And he prays it in, verse, in chapter 17 of John. He prays it. I, don't, I pray that you don't take them out of this world, but that you will be with them while they're in this world. You see how that, that works. And, and, and by the way, just so you know, I, I'm with all of you as well. I, I, I really do desire a much easier life. Anybody identify with that? Can I get an email? Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you desire an easier life for me. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. I, I want to have things always go my way, you know. I want them to always go well. I, I don't want to have to live by, you know, uh, hope for the best but plan for the worst. Uh, I, I want to wake up every morning with no concerns, no apprehensions, and no trepidations. But I also live, as you do, in this thing called reality. you probably heard me talk about this before. People often come to Jesus expecting all of their problems to be whisked away once they become a Christian. And what they don't understand is that when God, God's word tells us that, that we're going to have this blessed, abundant, and favored life, the definition of blessed, abundant, and favored is not necessarily tons of money and tons of success. And easy relationships with no problems. And worldwide status and influence. And an envied online presence. That's not what he's telling us. And this is what Malachi's people were expecting. Maybe not the online presence, but all the other stuff. That's what they were expecting. And again, the point is not that God or Jesus is to solve, eliminate, or make disappear our problems and challenges. But rather that he is with us as we walk through them. Giving us strength. Giving us wisdom. Comforting us. Giving us hope and those experiences, those challenges as, as we walk through them are designed really as a part of the testing of our faith to refine us and to grow us and to mature us to give us different perspectives not only about our own troubles but also about the troubles of others and to maybe even tenderize our hearts in the process. the Jews in Malachi's day didn't get this and we struggle with this as well and it's a great reminder for us it's a great reminder Uh, For me, I identify with the people that Malachi is speaking to here. But also, also, based on the context of this passage with everything else that we've already discussed in this book and with everything that we will discuss discuss, uh, going forward, here's another way that God is wearied by his people. Very important. God is weary when a priest presents himself as a priest but does not have the genuine heart of a priest. That's a message of warning to church leadership. God is wearied when a man presents himself as a husband and father, but does not have the genuine heart of a husband and father. That's a message for marriages and families. God is wearied when anyone puts on a show as sincere worship, but does not have the heart of a true worshiper. And that's a message of warning to any and all Christians. And every one of these is a message against hypocrisy. So Malachi continues, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messengers of the covenant in whom I in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. This messenger again is, as in chapter 2, a nod to the one who is to come, the suffering servant, the Messiah, the righteous one. In a sense, this is the new Malachi, the new Moses, and it's, and it's Jesus. And, and we see a fulfillment of this actually in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they, Joseph and Mary, brought him, Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, the Lord's Messiah. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light for the, for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. So there's this fulfillment in the gospels of what Malachi says in chapter three, uh, verse one. And this is a good thing. Jesus coming. We celebrate that. We proclaim it. It's the gospel and it is a blessing. Can you feel a butt coming? But. We must understand that there is no blessing without judgment. There just isn't. There will be no justice without, first, a reckoning of evil. Martin Luther, the great reformer, more than 500 years ago, wrote this. For justice to prevail, judgment must be rendered. Read the book of Revelation. The new Jerusalem comes only after the judgment. It comes only after the reckoning. And this judgment, this reckoning... Here's the challenge. It's going to touch everyone. The results are going to be different. But everyone gets touched by this. And verse 5 will tell us that God himself will take the stand and testify as to who we truly are and what we have done. And he knows everything. He knows all these goofy thoughts that go through my head every single day. And that's why we need Jesus. That right there is why we need Jesus. Because God does know us. And it's because Jesus took the ultimate judgment on the cross for us. And we need to remember, just like two weeks ago when Tyler preached, that we will find in verse 3 that the judgment, the correction of the injustices, will start where? Not outside the church. Not even necessarily inside the church at large, but rather it starts in God's house with the leaders of God's people. It starts with the sons of Levi. It starts with the ministers of the American Christian church and other Christian churches. It will not end there, but that is where it starts. And that tells us two things. Number one, God desires rightfully a high standard from all of us who really ought to know better. Those of us who teach and receive and understand the gospel. And number two, if the saved and redeemed are purified and cleansed, how tough is it going to be for those who have rejected God and his gospel? You ever considered that? One of the things that God is saying here is that the sincere person who fails, but admits and confesses their failure and seeks their only hope in Christ, that person will find grace. But the proud person who fails and then argues and makes excuses, and the person who does evil and calls it good, that person will find ultimate judgment. Verses 2 through 4. Here's the cleansing and the purifying. But who can endure the day of His coming and who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire like, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. And then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. So here you go. When the Lord comes, he will perform two inextricably connected and complementary works. He will purify some sinners. Those who are in Christ, that's verses 2 through 4 right here. And he will execute judgment of others, those who are not in Christ, that's verse 5, which we will get to. And this purifying work is done like a refiner's fire or the fuller's soap. These metaphors, these similes, these images communicate both the thoroughness and the gravity of this purification. The refiner's fire is hot enough to take the raw gold or silver ore and heat it up and melt it so that then the pure ore separates from the dross or the impurities. And the pure gold ore is heavier than the impurities. So, the, so as it melts, the, the pure gold will settle on the bottom of the crucible while the impurities or the dross go up to the top. And the refiner is then, the goldsmith is able then to to brush off those impurities. That's a picture of cleansing and, and purifying. And it's done over and over and over. You can't purify gold or silver with just one heat. You, you have to do it over and over and over. And the, and the fuller's soap, the fuller was the person who would clean garments. And they would clean garments by using a lye-based soap. And then they would take the garments with the soap and the water and beat them against the rocks. How's that for an image for us? Okay. And this lye-based soap is interesting because if you get it on you, what you feel is, is that the, the soap burns without consuming. It burns without uh, consuming. And there's a clear picture of all of this in the New Testament as well. Uh, James sort of adopts this picture of the refiner's fire. So James is a New Testament uh, book towards the end of the New, uh, of the New Testament. And James starts his book a little bit different than most of the other letters in the New Testament. Uh, Many of the letters in the New Testament have an elaborate introduction and then then have a prayer by the person writing for the people receiving it. James does this in verse 1. He says, I'm James and I'm writing to you. Boom, verse two and three, he just jumps right into it. And he says, consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters. And the first time you're reading that, you're like, yes, he's going to tell us about joy. I can't wait to hear this. Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter trials of various kinds. What in the wide world of sports is he talking about? When we encounter trials of various kinds, because the testing of your faith produces something good. It produces perseverance. Some of you have heard me talk about that's one of my favorite Greek words, it, it The word in other places is translated as endurance, as, as steadfastness. I love that word. We don't use that word much anymore. It's, it's translated as patience as well. It produces something good. And all of us, want, all of us would like to be uh, perseverant and have endurance and steadfast. And, wouldn't we all like that? We wish those were spiritual gifts, right? Why can't God impute that to us? Through Christ, But no, he says, this comes through Christ, but it comes through the testing of being with Christ. It comes through going through these challenges in this world. And, and so you look at the beginning of, of what James says. He says, consider it all joy because this is going to be a good process, even though it's going to be painful, this cleansing and purifying. When you encounter trials. So that word trials has also been interpreted in the New Testament in, uh, in other places as tribulation As suffering, as challenging, and as temptation. Isn't temptation a trial in your life? Yes. So consider joy when when you encounter these trials of various kinds. That word translated, I'm a word nerd, so you have to sit here for a couple minutes and listen to this. But that word various is actually the word that um, the Hebrew priests would use to translate the Hebrew into Greek in Genesis In the book of Genesis, it was used to describe Joseph's coat of many colors. So literally, and figuratively, this is a very colorful passage. Literally, what James is saying, consider it all joy when you encounter trials of many different colors that come at you. And isn't it that kind of a a good way to describe the way life comes at you in all these different colors? These trials come, they, they, there's green trials which, which bring about jealousy and envy, there's red trials that make us mad, there's blue trials that make us sad, there's, there's yellow trials that make us afraid. I wish I had something for purple and orange, that would be kind of cool, it'd be like a sun's deal, maybe just losing all the time, I don't know. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. They're getting better, they're getting better, they're getting better. But these trials come at us. The comprehensive nature of life, that's just living in reality. The comprehensive nature of life just coming at us. And then he says, how you do this is through the testing of your faith. You cannot do this without your faith, without Jesus walking alongside of you, without the filling of the Holy Spirit. That's the whole point. He's going through it with you. And that word testing that's translated testing of your faith is the word that they used in the ancient Greek, in the first century Greek to describe What a goldsmith does with raw ore when he heats it up in a crucible, melts it, and begins to cleanse the ore. Don't you ever feel like your life is being lived in a crucible that gets heated up and you have no control over the flame and how hot it gets? And that's the point. When we get heated up, when we're facing these things, we see the impurities in our lives, we see the dross. And and if we're smart and, and we seek God's wisdom, when we see that happening, we do what the, what the goldsmith does and he, uh, the refiner does. He pushes away those impurities. He cleans off the dross and we can do that too. So that when it gets heated up again, we're ready to go with more wisdom and, and more strength and more understanding. We're never going to get it absolutely perfect in this life, but we are being sanctified in that process. God does that for us and with us. And that is actually a blessing. It's hard. But it's a blessing, testing and cleansing us. And then, verse 5 Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Now, again, Reading Malachi, it's one of my favorite Old Testament books. And again, the word sorcerer just jumped out at me this time for some reason. Because so often what I do is I just blow by the word sorcerer and sorcery in the Old Testament. Because it's like, what does that have to do with us today? That was some ancient thing that we've outgrown. Not true. That might actually be the most important thing in this passage. And not to dwell on it, but rather to reveal to us what this means it's easy for us to think that's not our problem, but it is. Sorcery is any sort of divination where we try to assume in some way, shape, or form the position of God, and all of us are susceptible to that. And yes, sorcery is the pursuit of the dark arts and witchcraft, and, and the challenge of witchcraft and Wicca today is growing exponentially, and we should be aware of that. But sorcery is also the vague and hazy no- notion of spiritualism or spirituality that so many people embrace today. I hear this all the time. You know, I appreciate that you like Jesus. I don't, I don't, I don't really believe in Jesus, but I am a spiritual person. You know what the subtext to that is? is? I, I'm God. I'm God. No, nobody has authority over me. And sorcery is also practiced by anyone who assumes that there's a better answer to their life and questions than God and begins to pursue it. It's idol worship. And so rather than relating to God with pure worship, we worship and serve and look out only for ourselves. And rather than relating to our family with faithfulness, we commit all forms of adultery. Rather than relating to the poor with compassion, we live passively and self-protectively. And rather than relating to others with love and empathy, we We engage in treachery and gossip and partisanship and one-upmanship. And this judgment in verse 5 is of those who reject God, those who are not in Christ. And this again is reminiscent of uh, what's going on in the New Testament. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, these verses. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, so he's talking about those who have rejected and rebelled against God, God gave them up or gave them over to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. God pursues us. But there are times, Paul tells us, when he's just going to go, all right, you've rejected me enough, I get it, you're going to go your own way. Fine, I'll let you go your own way. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous degree, decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. That's the world we live in today. It is interesting too, when we read about these sin lists in Scripture, both the Old Testament and especially in the New Testament, um, it seems like that would be the dividing line between us and God. And so we get kind of hung up on this sometimes in the wrong way. Sin is the dividing line between us and God in terms of our separation from God. But it's not the dividing line between us and God in terms of our salvation and redemption. In other words, this idea that if you don't sin, you're in, and if you sin, you're out. That's not correct. The dividing line isn't sin, but rather it's Jesus, because we're all sinners, every one of us. If the dividing line was in fact sin, there would be no hope. None of us would have hope. The dividing line is, do you know Jesus? Have you come to Jesus? Have you given your life to Jesus and acknowledged Him as the Messiah, the Savior, the Lord? Paul talks about that just a couple of chapters later in Romans chapter 3, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, apart from understanding whether or not you're a sinner, but rather, uh, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, but the righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, so the dividing line is Jesus. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation for his, by His blood to be received by faith. Paul says it again a little bit differently but similarly in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where he writes this. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. That's so interesting. He says, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the righteous are described by those who know Christ not those who don't sin that's where the righteousness is and this tells us that people repent and come to Jesus and they're the ones who know this blessing and this passage in Malachi is about justice and judgment but it points to the good news it points to the gospel because both the judgment and the justice have been achieved by the cross of Christ by Jesus hanging on the cross And that's exactly the way God had it planned. That's been His plan from the beginning. It's His long plan. And that's why we can rejoice if we're in Christ. Because God looks at us now and does not see our sin, but He sees Jesus. He sees holiness and He sees righteousness when we are in Christ. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank You for Your Word and its truth. And we know that it's challenging and hard sometimes. But also the fact that you always return to this one supreme truth, that Christ is Lord and he's given us his life. God, I pray that if there's anybody here who doesn't know Jesus, that today would be the day that your spirit would open their heart and their mind to this reality and this truth. And God, for the rest of us, that we would be encouraged and we would be built up and we would be empowered by the strength and the filling of your Holy Spirit and by the power of the gospel and by the truth of your word, I pray that we would just soak ourselves in that. Help us to preach the gospel to ourselves every single day to be reminded of how radically and ruthlessly we are loved by you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.